I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Will Freeman, PhD candidate in politics at Princeton University and a 2022 Fulbright Hayes grantee to Colombia, Guatemala, and Peru. Will, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Pleasure to be here. Will, how did you first get into foreign policy and more specifically Western Hemisphere issues? Yeah, great question. So for me, the interest in the Western Hemisphere came before my interest in foreign policy. And it really started with studying comparative politics in undergrad and also uh, practicing journalism. So I started studying comparative politics when I was an undergrad at Tufts University. I was just really intrigued by Central and South America, you know, more than anything for what I saw as their similarities to the U.S. And for the ways that I thought I might be able to understand the U.S. better by studying our regional neighbors. Usually those parallels are overlooked because obviously the U.S. is a much richer country than most or any of those in Central and South America. But across the hemisphere, I mean, these are all democracies struggling with high levels of inequality, struggling to build robust social safety nets and show that market economies can work for majorities, often in the context of pretty polarized politics and legacies of authoritarianism and civil war. So all those sort of similarities made me really interested to to understand the Western Hemisphere as a whole better. Part of that interest expressed not only through studying, but also through working in journalism. So I was studying in Uruguay in 2015, sort of a direct enrolled study abroad program where I got the chance to work at the country's leading daily newspaper called El Observador, where they kind of let me run wild writing a column on U.S.-Latin American relations. So that's when I started diving into the foreign policy aspect of it. I ended up going to, you know, starting grad school at Princeton really because more than anything, I wanted to be able to spend some years in the region doing on-the-ground field work. Unfortunately, with COVID, those plans all kind of hit a brick wall. But the flip side of that, or the unexpected, you know, bright side was that it meant that I was here in the U.S., got to get involved with the Biden campaign's Western Hemisphere team, and later with working with the Senate Democrats on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Out of curiosity, how has working as a journalist influence the way that you look at these issues from the perspective of, a, of academia or foreign policy making? Do you feel like it's given you a different vantage point? I think it's given me an appreciation for people who are really able to break down complex issues in simple language and also make a persuasive argument in short form. The work in journalism was probably better preparation for weighing in on issues in foreign policy than academia, which is so often better at the other side of things, which is kind of so comprehensively understanding an issue or, you know, a given country's politics. Do you think that Western Hemisphere issues are neglected in general in foreign policy? And if you do, why do you think that? Well, I'll come right out of the gate saying that, yes, I do think that they're neglected. It's kind of almost a stereotype that that's the gripe that every Western Hemisphere focused person has. In fact, as little as Democrats and Republicans disagree on these days regarding the Western Hemisphere, I think that's one complaint that both sides of the aisle share in common for policymakers who focus on this. You know, paradoxically, these are the countries that are closest to us geographically, that in many ways affect life here in the U.S. most directly, culturally, also through immigration, um, through all kinds of economic ties. 
but they're often the furthest away from the headlines and the attentions of you know, top national security policymakers. In general, there are two big exceptions to that. One is when political turmoil in the region drives migration to the U.S. You saw that in a big way in the 1980s with civil wars in Central America. And you're kind of now seeing since the mid-2010s a real second wave driven by failed economies and corruption. Or, you know, I think the other exception when Latin America comes into the headlines is when the region is perceived to be involved in geopolitical conflict. And usually that's bad news for people in Latin America, for those societies. This was, you know, obviously the case during the Cold War when communism and anti-communism became the major fault lines in the region's politics after coups and a coup in Guatemala and the revolution in Cuba. Now I think there's a chance that the region will once again gain some salience, but for all the wrong reasons, which is an interpretation that somehow it's kind of at the crux of conflict between U.S. and China. Not to say that I don't think that there's, there's rivalry between the U.S. and China that plays out in the region, but it's maybe not the right reason that we should be caring about our partners in the Western Hemisphere. So, you know, I would conclude by saying, yes, Latin America does pop onto the agenda, but it's usually related to a crisis rather than being the focus of, of a sort of long game strategy of building relationships with democracies in our hemisphere. I think that that lack of focus has led to a somewhat uneasy consensus in Washington about how we should deal with Central and South America, which is kind of hand wave at aid, but then have really strict enforcement of immigration and really to to push back on refugee flows. What do you think is missing in this kind of middle road consensus that we've formed around Central and South American issues? Really, what's missing goes back to the point I just made about the habitual attention to the region when it's perceived to be in a moment of crisis. I think what we're most lacking in this sort of myopic focus on immigration enforcement or, you know, hand-waving gestures towards aid is a sort of uh, sustained focus on some of the priorities like supporting economic prosperity and anti-corruption that so often kind of take, take back seat to, to the issues that you just mentioned. And I think that that's uh, especially acute for countries, paradoxically, that are actually among the more stable ones. So you look at a country like Uruguay that, you know, and according to a lot of global indices of democracy, is, it actually surpasses the U.S., which, you know, despite its small size, and you know, difficult starting conditions has developed an economy that supports you know a larger middle class than exists in other Latin American countries. But Uruguay recently opted for a trade agreement with China because they'd been waiting so long to receive a comparable offer from the U.S. So I think that's just one and you know one particularly poignant example of the way that what we really lose sight of in this kind of consensus you mentioned is is a focus on strengthening our long term relationships with partners in the region. And in terms of the consensus, I do think that it's it might be true that there's consensus on issues of, to a large extent, on issues of immigration and, and aid, like you mentioned. But I also think that maybe more than with any other region in the world, consensus across the aisle on South America has broken down precipitously in the last 20 years. Maybe Democrats and Republicans aren't as divided on Latin America as you know when Carter was receiving the Sandinistas in the White House or uh, Reagan was covertly funding the Contras in Nicaragua. But the divisions are really sharp. You know, the Republicans, specifically Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, have advanced a very, you know, to them a very powerful narrative that leftists in Latin America, any candidate running to the left of center, is, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. To an extent, that narrative has a, you know, there's some basis in fact. Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan leftist socialist populist who came to power in that country and dismantled democracy, he didn't start off as a self proclaimed socialist. So 
there's some reason to fear. But, you know, I think this, this sort of narrative that any leftist is secretly harboring autocratic socialist designs has really taken hold of the Republican Party elite and also many voters in an extremely powerful way that just leads to a completely different perception of reality than how Democrats see the region. So I do think that on, on South America, we have to be attentive to the lack of consensus and, and what that might be doing to raise barriers to our relationships in the region. I want to go back to the point you made about the U.S. losing influence in the region vis-a-vis China and fascinating example with Uruguay and their sort of patience for our support running out. Is our sort of inability to either match China's offer or something along those lines due to a lack of consensus among American policymakers on these, this issue? Or is it due to a inability to see the geostrategic importance of continuing to maintain strong ties? Why are we screwing up here? Well, I guess before I answer that, I'd, and you know, with the caveat that I'm not someone who's an expert on China's role in the region, I do think we should we should approach the topic with a degree of cool-headedness. The kind of economic expansion China has pioneered in South and Central America isn't completely disproportionate with the size of its own economy. I mean, it's not surprising that a rapidly economically growing country would make investments in other parts of the world. So I don't think we need to raise alarm and kind of adopt a new Cold War narrative that you know China is coming to economically dominate all the economies in the region. That said, the terms on which it lends money are often predatory and come with no real conditionality about democracy or rule of law, which, you know, when the U.S. loans money to the region, maybe those, that conditionality is always not perfectly consistent, but it's often been there. And, you know, it's often pushed countries, presidents in the region to respect their country's democratic institutions. So, so I do think look, the China, you know, China's growing role is a problem, but it's, it's maybe it's certainly not the biggest problem that the region faces. In terms of why we haven't been able to push back more effectively, I mean, I do think that to an extent, we've been unwilling to lend money to governments that are infringing on democracy and the rule of law, whereas that's not an obstacle for China, as I was mentioning. So maybe in those cases, it's a good thing that we're not unconditionally financially supporting backsliding governments. But I think, you know, there are cases, like as I mentioned with Uruguay, where it's simply a matter of inattention that with such a crowded, you know, domestic policy agenda here in the U.S. and a national security agenda that often looks squarely towards the Indo-Pacific or Europe or the Middle East, what ends up happening is, you know, considering sort of a free trade agreement with an Andean country, for instance, or figuring out, you know, how we can make a more compelling counteroffer in terms of economic assistance to the Northern Triangle so that a country like El Salvador doesn't pivot you know, dramatically towards China economically, that those sort of concerns just inevitably end up on the back burner. Can you describe what the Biden administration's priorities are, what the agenda looks like, and how it's going? So I think the stated priority of this administration, much like their stated priority in the U.S., is to show that democracy in the Western Hemisphere can deliver for a majority for the middle class, which is a lot to bite off because that's Latin America and the Caribbean's biggest challenge right now. You know, much of the region stalled or is sliding backwards on economic growth and many other indicators of their population's well-being. And governments are facing increasingly tough, what I would call structural challenges to show that they can deliver, even when well-intentioned leaders hold office. 
they can struggle to implement and finance good policies because of legislative executive gridlock, because of weak states, because of the economic you know, devastation that COVID wrought, and because really most Latin American and Caribbean countries do not have economies that are diversified enough to withstand shocks in global commodity prices. So I think, you know, what has the administration been doing to, to kind of make good on this promise to help Latin American countries show that democracy can deliver? There have been trips to Ecuador, Colombia, and now Honduras, which I think have all been very necessary uh, just to show that, you know, we do care about these relationships. Biden has also named a number of ambassadors. Getting those ambassadors confirmed in the Senate is another question. <laughs> Ken Salazar, the new ambassador to Mexico, he was confirmed, but others, including the ambassador to Honduras, just been stalled out as this story with ambassadors all over the world um, or nominees all over the world. Um, and also, you know, regardless of this kind of stated priority about big picture stuff like making democracy work, vaccine assistance has had to take priority. Latin America and the Caribbean is home to 8% of the world's population, but 30% of the world's known COVID-19 fatalities, which is just devastating. And so I think a lot of the attention has been on getting vaccines to the countries that need them most. We also have to talk separately about what the stated goals are for Central America. There, it's really been, as we're all aware, right, focusing on the root causes of migration, poverty, gang violence, and corruption in what's called the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And there, I think what you, know, what you see the administration doing has a more punitive edge to it. They've used Magnitsky Act sanctions and what's called the Engel List um, of undemocratic and corrupt actors to, to designate these individuals for visa restrictions for asset freezes and other kind of individual but not sectoral sanctions. And just, you know, to briefly make assessment of that, it's not that those aren't worthy efforts or that the people ending up on those lists don't fully deserve to be there. But I think we have yet to see the administration really figure out a workable strategy for shifting the incentives of power holders in Central America. What you're seeing right now in, in that corner of the region is a real race to the bottom in terms of democratic backsliding with Nicaragua being the worst offender, but El Salvador and until recently Honduras and Guatemala falling, following in close behind. And I don't think yet that the administration has really figured out how they're going to tackle the root causes of migration when they have in this entire region increasingly autocratic governments coming to power, staying in power, and um, showing no sign that they're really susceptible to the levers that we've, sticks and carrots that we've tried to use on them so far. You studied in Eastern and Central Europe and did a Fulbright in Hungary. Do you see parallels between Hungary and Central and South America? And what would you say those have taught you? What do you think we can learn from looking at a more comparative level between these states? You know, I went to, to Hungary on this Fulbright, really interested in studying how the country's ruling Fidesz party led by Viktor Orban had captured Hungary's judiciary, how that process worked of kind of subtle, nonviolent, but very autocratic replacement of the country's constitution to set up, you know, autocratic institutions that looked so much like democratic ones on the surface, but really didn't turn out to be that way. That was motivated in part by, by my interest in kind of similar cases in Latin America, for instance, Venezuela. I do think, you know, here the differences probably outweigh the similarities. Hungary, you know, is affected by a whole different kind of European history of the world wars and of its imperial past that it doesn't have much of an analog in Central or South America. But I do think there's one similarity that uh, has really stood out to me between Hungary and a number of countries in, in the Western Hemisphere. And that's sometimes democratic transitions, as in Hungary, 
happen when you kind of get moderate opposition leaders and moderate members of the regime to all sit around a table and agree on a sort of, you know, consensus set of policies, consensus set of institutions that they can all live under. Sometimes in political science, that gets called a pacted transition. And in the early 90s, it was really perceived as kind of the golden ticket to figuring a pathway out of authoritarianism, both in Eastern Europe and in Latin America, because in Latin America, it also provided an end to civil war and beginning to democracy in El Salvador. It was viewed as kind of the reason that Venezuela and Colombia had remained stable democracies throughout the 20th century, while so many other countries in the region had fallen prey to military dictatorship. Also in Chile, there was like famously a pact of democracy between the center left and center right. Uh, and I think that what we're seeing from Hungary, but also so many countries in Latin America in the last few years, is that we placed far too much hope in this this kind of model of democratic transition to really deliver durable results. In Hungary, the story was that the right wing at the grassroots level and among people like Viktor Orban and his followers kind of lived with this bitterness for years, thinking that the pacted transition to democracy meant that justice had never really been served, that ex-communists had been allowed to get rich off of the transition to democracy and the quick free market reforms and that they really needed to dismantle this system in order to deliver any kind of historic justice. I'm not endorsing that narrative, but it's a powerful one that took hold, right? And you see a very, very similar story being repeated by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, by Nayib Bukele very recently in El Salvador, by populists elsewhere in the region who've, who've risen up in the context of these pacted, consensual democracies to say, actually, there's an important section of the population that these pacts left out and it's their turn to rule. So I think that that's the, you know, the really glaring similarities. You've written a little bit about the concept of isolation proofing by dictators in different countries in Latin America. Can you explain what isolation proofing is? So what I meant by isolation proofing was the idea that dictators in the Western Hemisphere are figuring out ways to reduce the costs of living under international economic and diplomatic isolation to essentially not completely eliminate those costs, but to make them bearable enough for themselves and their closest allies within their regimes, so that everybody you know, in their camp can agree that continuing to live under isolation is probably better than taking a chance on a transition to democracy. And the, you know, I was talking about that idea, that concept that I developed in terms of really three countries in the region. Cuba, which I argue you know, has been practicing isolation proofing for years, and then also Venezuela, uh, which has kind of learned the art under Nicolas Maduro, and Nicaragua, which until now hasn't been nearly as isolated as, as you might expect, has enjoyed a lot of connections economically with the U.S. through the CAFTA-DR trade zone and also with other Central American countries. But, you know, really all three of these dictators, Miguel Diaz-Canal in, in Cuba, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela, and Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua have all started to kind of finesse, finesse this art. I break it up into three sort of tactics that I, I see emerging across all these cases. One is that in each case, you see dictators forming partnerships with autocracies to replace the ones that they've lost with democracies through sanctions or through diplomatic maneuvers. So Venezuela, that's particularly pronounced with you know new kind of connections to the regime of Erdogan in, in Turkey, for instance. You know, trading Venezuelan illicitly mined gold for for currency and consumer goods, uh, or with Iran. And you see Nicaragua sort of laying the groundwork for similar types of connections with autocracies. Second, you know, I argue that part of isolation proofing means that these dictators have to figure out a way to transform their economies from the inside out to make sure that they can buffer the shock of broad sectoral sanctions. So again, in Venezuela, you know, the Trump administration eventually slapped these pretty 
tough oil sanctions on the country, which are Venezuela's main export. And what did Maduro do but find a way to restructure his economy so that profits from organized crime, from international drug trafficking and illicit gold mining could really make up for the lost revenue streams from oil and keep his cronies happy. And then last, you know, I argue that part of isolation proofing involves dictators figuring out how to divide their democratic opponents. Cuba is really, you know, the best example of that. Cuba's pursued a two-track kind of diplomacy where it's formed friendly enough relations with Europe over the years, while the U.S. has continued a very hardline stance. Cuba's been able to exploit that clearly to its advantage economically in terms of, you know, forming a robust tourism sector that until COVID drew in a lot of foreign currency reserves and propped up its economy. And I think, um, you know, you're seeing Venezuela try and often succeed at a pretty similar strategy, playing off the U.S. and, you know, European diplomats against one another and exploiting their kind of occasional disagreements about what's the best approach. So, you know, the reason I, I put the idea out there is really that I think, you know, a lot of uh, the Biden administration's focus so far has rightly been on what do we do to raise the costs for leaders who are engaged in democratic backsliding, who are bringing their countries towards autocracy in the region. That's all very fine and well, but we need to be conscious of the way that these leaders also have their own playbook for pushing back. I think that's absolutely right. I think it's a really interesting and important concept. I think we can see it in other areas of the world too, Russia, Iran just to name two that are isolation proofing themselves or have been for years. And it's just a response to America's failure to move off of economic sanctions when they don't work and finding new tools to impact these nefarious regimes. But let's zoom in a little bit on Venezuela. Can you sort of explain a little bit more what's going on there and what, if anything, we can do beyond sanctioning them to make the situation better for average Venezuelans? Uh, I mean, it's a tough question. I do see Venezuela as perhaps the most intractable long-term political crisis in the region. But just to give, you know, listeners like a little bit of context on that, I think we all know, or, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the kind of narrative, the developments that Hugo Chavez, this military officer, won power as a populist in 1999, you know, really off the frustration of an electorate that felt very underserved by exactly the type of pacted democracy or sort of, you know, very monopolistic two-party system that I was just talking about a few minutes ago. So Chavez got into power and, you know, slowly dismantled democracy, eventually handing power to Nicolas Maduro, the current leader who enmeshed himself as as a dictator and kind of steered the regime towards a more full-fledged authoritarian system. And all the while, the opposition was competing on a really difficult and uneven playing field. But by 2015, they'd managed to unite themselves. That was not an easy task. Uh, it only came after they chose to sit out of certain elections in the 2000s, and which was a really, really tough and some would say disastrous decision that excluded them from power. But they eventually united. They won a supermajority in 2015 legislative elections. And this was their strongest moment for about 15 years. So unfortunately, what happened next is that Nicolas Maduro installed a parallel government kind of under the guise of writing a new constitution. He gave this body he created to write the constitution full legislative powers. And the opposition had to kind of contend with being lame ducks, with not having any real governing power, any power to pass legislation, get it enacted. So that all led up to 2019, when as sort of a way to break through this impasse, you saw Juan Guaido lead a mass protest movement, use a provision in the constitution to claim authority constitutionally under the constitution created by Chavez as interim president of Venezuela. He gained a lot of you know, diplomatic recognition, including you know, the strong support of the, the Trump administration. 
And for a moment, it looked like he was going to finally be this this figure who could rally, you know, the kind of mass protest that would displace the the regime. But of course, you know, there was a really tough crackdown, a violent crackdown by Maduro. And then the interim government started entering this kind of tough period where it was existing in exile, focused largely on keeping the international support that it had already garnered. But meanwhile, you know, while Maduro was cracking down at home, and while, you know, some would say the opposition was growing kind of, it, it was increasingly hard for the opposition to connect with that demobilized protest movement that it had originally summoned to the street. So I think where we see ourselves now is that the op- most people agree the opposition is the most disunited it's been. It's also, you know, lost a lot of favor if you look at public polling among the population. Not to say that you can, you know, trust polls on face value in a country like Venezuela, but it would seem that Guaido is, is also quite unpopular, not as much as Maduro, but, but quite unpopular. I think the opposition is in a very difficult spot where they're looking for a new strategy, a, a way to find kind of a new generation of leadership or a new set of electoral or political strategies. But um, there's a very, that comes with a heavy, and I'd say a realistic dose of cynicism that Maduro has by now constructed a very durable authoritarian regime. So what mo- most recently happened is that the opposition, after a few years of once again abstaining from elections, they decided to participate in elections held a couple of weeks ago to elect regional and local authorities. You might be thinking, why would you run for a mayor in an authoritarian state? What would that achieve? And, you know, certainly there are some, in many Republicans, some Democrats who felt that it was a mistake of the Venezuelan opposition to, yeah, including Guaido, to even consider participating in these elections. But in the end, what happened is that the while the opposition was robbed of its victories it scored, and, you know, clearly the election, you know, this was nothing more than really a sham in most states. In the state of Barinas, the opposition did seem to pull off quite a remarkable victory for governor. You know, Maduro immediately had to use some kind of contrived legal mechanism to say the opposition didn't really win. We can install our own ruling party person there as governor. And that brought the opposition back into the international headlines once again, not for their own failings, right? But rightly, and as it should be, with a focus on Maduro's tactics to steal elections. So I think that Right now, there's a sense that maybe by continuing to participate, even in highly manipulated, repressive elections, that the opposition can keep the focus on Maduro's ham-fisted techniques to steal votes. If that's the case, I, you know, become a little bit more hopeful. But, um, but look, this is going to be, you know, the work of years. It took decades for military dictatorships in the southern cone, like Chile's and Brazil, Brazil's to, um, to eventually fall. And I don't think that we should expect Venezuela to be able to turn the page to, you know, a democratic chapter within the scale of a year or two. Now, I think that the administration is well aware of that. Fortunately, they've already taken steps to make good on promises to grant Venezuelans in the US TPS, also to deliver humanitarian aid, although being fully cognizant that it could easily be manipulated by the regime. But I really think if there's if there's one thing that we can do that we should be doing now to help more, it's to support the exodus of Venezuelans who are living in, across South uh, America especially in Colombia, Peru, Chile. We've seen the largest refugee crisis in the Western Hemisphere's history unfold in Venezuela. The you know, countries that have largely shouldered the burden of this are struggling under really tough fiscal constraints right now. The most important thing we could do would be to figure out a way to deliver robust and continuing economic support and support with migrant regularization and integration programs through uh, and to these countries. Will, when COVID travel restrictions ease, where are you headed first to do field work? What are the questions that you feel like you can't answer from behind a desk? Where are you most excited to to go and get boots on the ground? 
I will first be headed to Colombia. My dissertation focuses on three countries, Colombia, Peru, and Guatemala. Kind of tries to make a comparative analysis of those countries' experiences over the past 15 years fighting corruption through their public prosecutor's offices. I've started research in Colombia in 2019. The pandemic cut it short, but that's the first place I'll be going back to. The puzzle I'm interested in understanding there is why Colombia has progressed so much less far than you know many of its neighbors in terms of investigating and prosecuting high-level corruption. And it's a genuine puzzle because Colombia is known for having a pretty strong judiciary. Its high courts have done a lot of remarkable things. They've legalized a lot of rights, that uh, progressive rights, which, you know, uh, were kind of in some cases the first to do so. They've also investigated ex-president Alvaro Uribe for witness tampering. Uh, he's an extremely powerful figure, so that's nothing to blink at. And they've investigated scores of mayors and governors for ties to right-wing paramilitaries. That's all very impressive, but Colombia remains one of the least active countries on investigating corruption, especially financial corruption, in the region. So first, I wanna, I'm want going to be there talking to prosecutors, judges, business people, and politicians about why Colombia has struggled so much compared to its neighbors to, to bring the corrupt to justice. Second, I'm going to be going to Peru, which is kind of the exact opposite case. So Peru, despite having a historically weak judiciary, has actually been investigating and sanctioning unprecedented numbers of politicians, especially high-level politicians, since 2015 to 2016. Even during the pandemic, that, uh, that progress has really not slipped up. Even as the country cycled through more than four or five presidents in just the last four years, it's also kept up this anti-corruption momentum. So I'm really un- interested to, under- to understand and hear from prosecutors firsthand why it is that they've been able to, um, to kind of pioneer and then sustain these high-level investigations. And then finally, I'll be going to Guatemala, which I've become really fascinated with, and which is sort of a middle ground case. So it was heading in a Peru-like direction with the help of a United Nations-backed anti-corruption commission called the, the CICIG for uh, about a decade. But uh, in 2019, that commission was shut down by the Guatemalan government. And in the last couple of years, you've really seen a total backlash against the anti-corruption progress made. Many of the politicians who were either in jail or awaiting trial have been let off on appeals or managed to shelve their cases. And um, a good number of the independent judges and prosecutors who spearheaded the anti-corruption movement have been forced to flee the country. So, uh, so those are the three places I'll be going and, uh, and the, the kind of questions I'll be digging into. Our listeners are really interested in foreign policy, but as we said, Western Hemisphere issues are particularly neglected among the foreign policy set. So if you were to make a recommendation, where should people start if they're interested in getting into Western Hemisphere issues? Two books I read recently come to mind. And you know the reason I name them is because they're really broad and synthetic. They give you a nice snapshot of the region's politics. In the case of the first one, over a couple centuries, and in the case of the latter one, in the last 20 years. The first one is Michael Reed's Forgotten Continent. He was the economist correspondent for Latin America for years and years. His book is really nice because it channels a lot of scholarship, both by Latin American scholars and by scholars here in the US, historians and political scientists. But it puts it in this really readable language to tell you about why Latin America has historically struggled with developing diversified economies, why the region has struggled so much to develop strong states, why it did eventually democratize after repeated bouts of military dictatorship. You know, his recent update on that book from 2017 kind of brings you up to the, the present as well. The second book I'd say, which is more narrative, is by a BBC journalist, Will Grant, 
who spent a bunch of years living and working in countries beset by populism in South America. His book is quite a tome. It's something like seven or eight chapters, but he looks at the rise of populists or who he defines as populists across the continent in the 2000s to the 2010s. And um, has interviews with the major figures from Hugo Chavez to Rafael Correa in Ecuador to Evo Morales in Bolivia um, and Lula da Silva in Brazil, which kind of blends the sort of historical nature of the first book with um, with more of a narrative touch. So I'd recommend those two. Great. So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we talk about something that we're each following, whether that's political or cultural. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? Thanks, Grant. I'm following something a little more sobering this week. I've been following the developments related to the American airstrike in Kabul uh, back in August that killed 10 civilians, seven of which were children. It was just recently reported that none of the military personnel who were involved in the strike are going to face any sort of punishment. Although the Pentagon did acknowledge that the airstrike was a mistake a while back, but only really after a New York Times investigation first challenged the military's previous assertions that it, that it had been necessary um, to prevent a potential attack. You know, I think that this incident really speaks to the difficulty of pinning down accountability in war. And unless there's real sort of negligence or misconduct, it's just very, very hard to prosecute alleged crimes on a battlefield. And so as a result, I think often the uh, outcomes are very unsatisfying and there's not a whole lot of resolution. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing here. Well, this week, I wanted to flag a piece in the New York Times that has everyone buzzing, a guest essay printed on December 2nd called The Metaverse is Coming and the World is Not Ready for It by our very own Zoe Weinberg. Zoe lays out potential areas of concern as well as some bright spots for human rights and geopolitics in the metaverse. It really helped me think through a variety of things. And I really wanted to highlight specifically what she said about the physical infrastructure of the metaverse. She writes, China could effectively control the metaverse's backbone in many corners of the world thanks to the Digital Silk Road Initiative, which finances some countries' telecommunication systems. Taiwan, which dominates the semiconductor industry that supports computing needs, will likely become even more of a linchpin on the global stage. This kind of physical infrastructure will, in turn, be vulnerable to hacking and supply chain interruptions. If people own property, earn a living, and maintain communities in the metaverse, then hardware shortages or service outages could jeopardize livelihoods or undermine social stability. It's really easy to get wrapped up in the digital aspect of the metaverse, but the physical one matters just as much. Thanks, Grant. And maybe we'll do an episode on the metaverse at some point. (laughs) Well, we'll see if we can book you. (laughs) Well, uh, over to you. I can build off of that with something that really ties in, which is El Salvador. El Salvador has, you know, in the last few months, made a move towards adopting Bitcoin as a national tender. You know, there's been a lot of focus on this, a lot of kind of superficial headlines about El Salvador's, you know, cool millennial potential autocrat president who loves Bitcoin or, you know, kind of Bitcoin traders traveling to El Salvador to hang out on the beach and conference with one another. Uh, but I mean, the real story here from from people who seem to follow it closely and, and especially one investigative news outlet particular in El Salvador that's done a lot of risky reporting to hold Bukele's government to account called El Faro or the Lighthouse 
is that, you know, it seems that the switch to Bitcoin is probably a move to hide government corruption. There's a lot of speculation that what Bukele is trying to hide is corrupt state payments to the major two gangs that operate in the country to get them to to lower homicide rates and work with his government. And, you know, if that's the case, it really adds sort of a dark, there's a dark underbelly or a dark side to, uh, to the story that's kind of often reported in a slightly more, you know, lighthearted manner. Why I was following with this week was that there was a major diplomatic blowout between Bukele and the Biden administration. Bukele is famously a fan, a buddy of Trump. He's not really made moves to come close to the Biden administration, but there was a working relationship. That said, late last week over, there was sort of a case where Gene Maines, the interim charge of affairs in San Salvador, had recently quit saying that Bukele was basically unwilling to work with the U.S. about any of its objectives and his retaliation. He published this screenshot of personal DMs between them where she'd been um, asking about the case of um, politician who'd been in jail. And Bukele was kind of claiming that she was trying to steer the justice system from behind the scenes. But anyway, just to put a point on it, uh, I've been following El Salvador where things seem to be going from bad to worse. Well, with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Will at Will G. Freeman. If you are a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's podcast is brought to you by Times Person of the Year. We only said Elon was Person of the Year, not that he was Good Person of the Year. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Oh,